Welcome to the Week Ahead in Russia, RFERL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman, and my guest this week is Ben Noble, an associate professor of Russian politics at University College London and a co-author alongside Jan Mati Dolbaum and Morvan Lauluet of a book about Alexei Navalny that was published last year. It's called Navalny, Putin's Nemesis, Russia's Future, with a question mark after that last part. Uh, thanks very much for joining me today, Ben. Thanks for having me, Steve. All right. Uh, it's great to have you on the podcast. I'll just mention that we've been conducting this podcast live on Twitter Spaces uh, for the past month or so, and the plan is to continue doing that whenever possible. Uh, it's also available um, on the RFERL website uh, afterwards. Uh, a little later today. Uh, so to those tuned in now and those listening later, welcome. Now we're going to discuss uh, Russia's war on Ukraine and some of the consequences in Russia. Uh, but to start off, I'd like to tap your expertise on Navalny, Ben, uh, following a development last week that in different times would presumably have been the biggest Russia story of the week or, or the month or maybe more. I'll just preface it by saying that uh, for many years, President Vladimir Putin's government seemed to avoid uh, sending Navalny to prison for long periods of time, even as he was repeatedly convicted of financial crimes on charges he and many others contend were fabricated. He was jailed for short periods uh, many, many times, um, but a lot of observers felt that the Kremlin feared that putting him behind bars for years uh, would spark major protests. Then, of course, in January 2021, when he returned to Russia, Germany, following treatment for a near-fatal nerve agent poisoning that he blames on Putin, Navalny was arrested at the airport and soon handed a two-and-a-half-year prison term. Now, his arrest did lead to, to big protests, um, but uh, Kremlin crackdown ensued, or an intensified crackdown, um, and... Uh, uh, it's kind of gone on from there. And, and now last Tuesday, Navalny was convicted in another case that he dismisses as absurd and was sentenced this time to nine years in prison. Ben, I'm going to ask you two questions that may be unfair because one requires kind of looking into Putin's mind and the other predicting the future. But here goes. Um, what do you think was the thinking behind the new nine-year sentence? And what are the chances that Navalny will actually still be in prison, let's say, on New Year's Day in 2030? And will that be affected by what happens in Ukraine? Thanks, Steve. I think, you know, the aim of the new nine-year sentence is clear, and that's to keep Navalny behind bars for the foreseeable future. There's nothing surprising in my response there. We should also say that this sentence is going to be served in a quote-unquote strict regime colony where the conditions uh, are likely to be worse than they are in his current place of detention in Pokrov, which is about 100 kilometers east of Moscow, uh, even though the place where he currently is already has a fearsome reputation. So things don't look good for Navalny just in terms of the prison conditions that he's likely to face. Uh, anyway, the basic aim of the long sentence, I think, is to erase Navalny more broadly from the public's consciousness. 
We've also seen this in the requirements for media outlets in Russia to remove references to certain anti-corruption foundation investigations. Uh, Dmitry Peskov, Vladimir Putin's spokesperson, has already admitted that the Kremlin doesn't want Navalny's popularity to increase, at the same time as saying that Putin isn't afraid of Navalny. Now, this is something that we question in the book that you kindly mentioned at the start. And we detail how even if we can't get inside Putin's head, and it's something that lots of people are trying to do at the moment, we can point to a large number of observable facts that suggest Navalny does loom large in Putin's mind, including the fact that the Russian president doesn't mention Navalny's name in public. And Team Navalny have released information that they claim shows that the judge in Navalny's latest trial was in contact with the presidential administration during the process leading to accusations of quote-unquote telephone justice. That is, the idea that the verdict and sentence were simply decisions made by the Kremlin, so it was politicised, rather than decisions reached by an autonomous judicial system. This is, how should I put it, highly plausible. You also mentioned something about the contrast in the length of the term. So you're definitely right about this contrast between the length of the sentences Navalny received this year and last year compared to those that he's received previously. And I think that signals a few things. Firstly, a realisation that conditions have changed so much that the numbers of protesters that we saw at street protests following Navalny's detention last year just won't be repeated, including because of the increasingly harsh crackdown on those street protests. And the second point is a fundamental shift, as I said, in the way that the authorities have tried to deal with Navalny. So over time, the clear trend is one of increasing caution, which, of course, makes sense given that Navalny's rising popularity and the greater challenge that he presented over time to a political leadership that's just intolerant of politicians presenting any type of credible, charismatic alternative. And it's also something that's clear, not only in terms of sentencing, but also in terms of the way that the authorities have treated Navalny as a political figure involved in formal politics. So he was allowed onto the ballot in the Moscow mayoral election in 2013, but then was barred from running in the 2018 presidential race, and then his whole organisational network was labelled extremist and dissolved. So we can see that trend, clear trend, over time. More broadly, I think Navalny's treatment by the authorities traces the same story as for the political opposition and critical voices in Russia recently. So that is of the authorities being much less inclined to tolerate and manage such voices. They seem to be much more ready to rely on coercion and repression as modes of government. So what we've seen since the invasion of Ukraine is, as I see it, a rapid acceleration of trends already evident, but which began to pick up speed following Navalny's return to Russia uh, last year in 2021. Now, will Navalny still be behind bars on New Year's Day 2030? Prediction is, of course, a fool's errand, but I'll take up the challenge, albeit cautiously. Whether Navalny is still behind bars then depends on two key things, as I steered. The first is whether he'll still be alive then. Now, I don't want to dwell too long on this depressing possibility, but when asked about Navalny's health in prison, Dmitry Peskov responded with the very worrying statement, quote, let's hope he doesn't die, end quote. This ominous statement becomes even more so when taking into account the worst conditions Navalny will face when serving his new sentence. Uh, in these worst conditions, in this stricter prison colony regime. And international relations, I think, may also play a part too. Before Russia's February invasion of Ukraine, it was plausible to assume that the Kremlin might have been incentivized to make sure Navalny remained alive in prison. 
thereby keeping him out of sight, but not drawing international condemnation that would be sparked by his death in custody. But now that relations between Russia and many countries have deteriorated so markedly, it might be that this consideration shifts for the Russian authorities, that they just think that things can't really get any worse, and that there's simply less attention space available for Navalny in media coverage outside of Russia, as we've already seen with the coverage of his latest trial. If Navalny remains alive, then the question of whether he'll still be in prison in 2030 also depends on whether Putin uh, is also alive and in power. As we all know, Putin now has the constitutional authority to remain in the presidency until 2036, if he decides to run and wins re-election in 2024 and 2030. Uh, And it's difficult to imagine that Navalny will be released from prison while Putin is still president. And yet, all of that said, I think it would be foolish to write off Navalny. Even in his latest trial, where he looked clearly physically diminished by his time in prison, his character just continued to shine through. His bravery, his sarcastic humour, and his strength. So I'm trying to end on a positive note there. Thank you. I I think that's uh, kind of necessary under the circumstances uh, to end on a positive note. I, I have to say, I hadn't heard Peskov's remark about let's hope he doesn't die. That's quite breathtaking. Um, um, I actually wrote an article last week that got, I attempt, tried to get into the idea that, you know, when, when Navalny was imprisoned uh, last year, it, it seemed like everything was kind of certain and he'd, you know, he'd be in prison, you know, as you said, as long as Putin is in power. It's hard to imagine him being out. You know, it seems to me that the situation with Ukraine has, you know, has changed the, not changed that that uh, kind of premise uh, that he'll be in prison until while Putin's in power, but you know, has changed kind of the chances, uh, you know, of what will happen. Uh, so we will see uh, what you know what transpires uh, with that. Um, also, just kind of. You mentioned Navalny's character remaining strong, um, and it just seems to me this is sort of uh, personal observation. But uh, we we now had this interview yesterday, I believe, from uh, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, and it's just juxtaposing these uh, these these two peoples. Uh, Remarks and the way they speak um, with, with Putin's, especially Putin's recent remarks, um, heading towards the war in the war is just kind of a strike. There's a strike difference between um, between the two, or between Putin and and on one hand Navalny and Zelensky, and maybe others on the other hand. Yeah, I agree entirely that language becomes really important. And, you know, it's not just language. We can also think about the optics. So uh, I've uh, commented maybe superficially, but I think actually it matters on the pictures that we've seen of Zelensky smiling, surrounded by his family. And we also can remember pictures of Navalny when he wasn't behind bars in similar situations. And that does contrast with the figure of Putin alone making venomous speeches. I know we're going to get onto that in a bit. So, you know, I think language and optics really do matter um, in all of this because, you know, it's, it, it's playing out on a public stage 
um, even if it isn't all scripted theatre. Some of it's scripted, but some of it is really sincere. I should also mention, Steve, before we move on, that Peskov's statement about let's hope he doesn't die in prison, I think that was made in October 2021. So he hasn't uh, stated that in relation to the latest verdict and sentence, but I think the sentiment remains the same. And if anything, maybe the ominous overtones of it have just increased. Yeah, absolutely, um, absolutely. Uh, yeah, okay, let's and let's get uh, go on uh, talk a bit more about the war uh, in Ukraine and its re- repercussions in Russia. And as you mentioned, uh, some Putin's remarks we'll, we'll talk about. Russian officials have said repeatedly that the war, which they call a special military operation, is going according to plan. Uh, Putin and others have said that. Let's leave aside what I think are the monstrous connotations of that statement if one takes it at face value. Uh, all, all this death and destruction, suffering, children killed, cities raised. I mean, uh, Mariupol's destroyed, thousands of people there have been killed. So if that was the plan all along, I, I don't, you know, I just don't know what to say about that, really. Um, uh, to say that things are going according to plan, uh, it's... Uh, uh, at the same time, uh, it seems clear that, in fact, the war has not gone as Putin hoped it would. Um, it's widely believed that he wanted to take Kiev. Uh, and, you know, there's evidence of this in, in things that he's said and, and things that have happened, um, that he wanted to take Kiev and set up a puppet regime or force Ukraine into mass concessions, essentially subjugating uh, within fourth. This obviously did not happen and has not happened. Um, sorry, this, this obviously did not happen and, and has not happened. Uh, and on Friday, the Russian military made remarks suggesting that Russia's goal is now to take complete control of the Donbass, of the Donetsk and Luhansk regions. And that's a separate, uh, uh, that's kind of a smaller, um, it's still it's still a kind of a massive goal in terms of what you're doing to Ukraine, but it's smaller than uh, than what um, it seemed that uh, Russia was aiming for before. But I think another piece of evidence that things have not gone as expected uh, was an address um, that he made on March 16th. Now Putin has made several speeches lately uh, that have been very dark and, and combative, really. Uh, but this one stood out in some ways, at least in terms of remarks about Russia. Um, he basically demanded total loyalty from, from Russians, uh, spoke of a fifth column uh, backed by the West, and of the purification of the nation, which is frightening wording, of course. And he said that Russians can, quote, distinguish true patriots from scum and traitors, unquote. And these remarks seemed aimed at, at least in part at the so-called oligarchs, the, the tycoons, close to Putin, but I think they were aimed at everyone. Um, ben, wh- what do you make of all this? Putin has often spoken about the need for patriotism, um, and he's often accused the West of, of seeking to undermine Russia. So uh, were these remarks sort of more the same, or is something new going Yeah, I think Putin's televised comments on the 16th of March were venomous, but also, I think, really emotional. Most of the time, Putin comes across as calm and collected, but he also has a track record of occasionally using coarser language and appearing to let his emotions get the better of him. One clear example relates to comments he made way back in 19. 19- 
1979, which I think partially set the tone for his presidency. Uh, so he said that he would uh, catch Chechen terrorists in the toilet and wipe them out in the outhouse. Um, uh, and so this is interesting, the frequency with which that particular phrase is returned to as colouring the beginning of his presidency uh, and maybe giving a sense of what was to come, although I don't think we should get into that debate right now. So I think part of the reason for the rhetoric we heard on the 16th of March relates to Putin's frustration regarding the lack of progress at the expected speed of the Russian military's assault on Ukraine. This is, of course, as you mentioned, despite claims, that everything is going to plan. We have seen uh, a bit of commentary that goes off script that ahead of the National Guard maybe has made comment that, that pushed back against that narrative of everything's fine. But broadly speaking, we are seeing that phrase repeated by lots of people. The rhetoric on the 16th of March also, I think, reflects Putin's frustration at the opposition to the war already voiced by certain members of the elite in Russia. So that's the political elite, but also the economic and cultural elite as well as by members of the general public, including the type of opposition that we've seen at anti-war protests across the country. So the black and white language of us versus them, patriots versus traitors, Russia versus the West, I think is meant to force people to pick a side, removing the possibility for ambiguity regarding where people stand uh, regarding the conflict. Or the goal is simply to silence those who might consider voicing their dissent, or even to make those considering leaving the country to think again for fear that they might not be allowed back or labelled traitors if they do return. But I also think that it has got something to do with Putin's own sense of security. Now, we shouldn't be expecting a palace coup anytime soon, but... Given Putin's public centrality to the invasion, he will no doubt be keenly aware of the thin dividing line between opposition to the war specifically and opposition to him as leader in general. And this is, as far as I see it, yet another indication of one of the perils of personalist authoritarian political systems. Steps can, of course, be taken to deflect blame from the leader to lower level functionaries. And it looks like we're seeing that with a shift of more authority to regional head to deal with the economic problems resulting from the unprecedented sanctions regime imposed on Russia after the invasion of Ukraine. The Kremlin, it seems, is hoping that Russians will blame the West for economic hardship. But if they do look inside Russia, then I think the Kremlin hopes that uh, Russian citizens will blame governors rather than Moscow. We saw a similar shift, I should note, um, of authorities to the regions in the early phase of the COVID-19 pandemic, and the logic, the blame deflection logic, was entirely the same. But I think it's going to be trickier to deflect blame if things go increasingly wrong with the war on Ukraine, given Putin's role as you know, the beating heart of this operation. Yes, we've already seen evidence of some heads rolling, and this may well continue, but as commander-in-chief, Putin is in an extremely exposed position, which, again, is, is one of the reasons why I think we saw the type of language or heard the type of language that we heard on the 16th of March. And it's also one reason why I think things may only get worse in Russia going forward. And this is when I'm finding it trickier to come up with positive ending, like I tried to do in my comments on the Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you, you noted sort of the effort to to deflect blame you know, to governors, you know, maybe in the longer run, and then also uh, to the West uh, and, and NATO. Uh, and I think we're seeing you know a big push, a big push for that um, on the on the Kremlin's part. 
now um, uh, in terms of of trying to blame blame NATO for for everything and and make it seem to Russians like uh, essentially the war is against NATO and and the West. Um, you know, obviously that's been going on for a long time, but I think there's sort of a stepped up stepped up effort yeah, in that direction. Definitely, I think you know lots of these rhetorical developments. Um, are rarely new, they're just intensifications of existing trends. So, for example, if we look at sanctions, we know that the media line uh, from the Kremlin is that it wants Russian citizens to blame the West. And they were already laying the groundwork for the invasion. They were saying that the West was itching to impose sanctions on Russia with a view to crippling the economy and therefore with a view to undermining the country. So it's not as if they have to start from scratch. It's not as if they have to um, pull a 180 in order to say something completely different from what they've said before. Lots of this stuff has been um, said before. It's just being said with a frequency and with an existential urgency uh, that means that it's worthwhile, I think, talking about in a bit more detail. Uh, and it also means for the Kremlin going forward, maintaining the media narrative is going to be crucial. But also, I think it's worth, you know, sounding a note of caution that I think maybe there could be the impression amongst some people outside of Russia that if only Russian citizens saw information that was presented on screens in the West, then Russians would immediately say, oh dear, uh, the Russian military has invaded Ukraine, there's a war on the country, and that would make them uh, oppositional to the political leadership in Russia. But I think we should be very, very cautious. We should move away from this binary of either support or opposition to the Kremlin. There is lots and lots of space in the middle of shades of grey, of nuances that means that people, yes, they might see information increasingly, that aligns with what we're seeing on our screens outside of Russia, but that isn't going to mean that they immediately go on the streets and call for Russia without Putin. There are ways in which maybe they try and deal with that cognitive dissonance in different ways that means that they don't actually uh, challenge the leadership's position regarding the conflict. It might be that they just withdraw from conversations about the conflict, whether they um, just uh, stop, you know, uh, thinking about it, because that's a way in which they can, you know, focus on their self-preservation. So I just wanted to make that point because it's certainly something that I've at least heard intimations of slipping into this binary logic. It's just not as simple as getting information to lots of Russians that will immediately turn them against the uh, political leadership of the country. No, I, I mean, I agree. I, you know, I think, and, and we've seen that, I think some of our FERL, you know, done, uh, spoken to people in Russia, um, you know, and, and in some cases you, you know, they're saying we, we don't believe that this is happening. But then in other cases, they're sort of more indicating, well, you know, I just don't want to, don't want to deal with it. So, and I think that's one thing, that's one way, uh, you know, one way of approaching it that people are going to take, um, regardless of, of what information they, they may have access to. So, you know, as you say, I think it's it's more complicated uh, than it may look or than it, you know, one might hope it would be. Um, all right, so we, we are running out of time. Those are some great uh, insights, Ben. Uh, let's, let's sort of take a few questions if anyone has any. Uh, if you have questions, you can, uh, ask for to be a speaker and then um, can be picked on for a question.
I'll just give a, a few moments in case there are any. Okay. Uh, all right. I will uh, wrap it up here then. Um, so, uh, Ben, uh, thanks very much. Great to talk to you. Thanks, for, thanks very much for joining me. Uh, my pleasure, Steve. All right. Talk to you soon. Uh, and I'll be back again next Monday. Uh, and everyone, please keep an eye out on Friday for my Week in Russia newsletter. Thanks for listening.